millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Not Going Back to Normal, a series from XPRIZE on how COVID-19 is changing how we work, live, and interact. I'm your host, Chris Klassen, head of brand experience and former president of Christopher Street West, the nonprofit that produces the annual LA Pride Festival and Parade. On June 28, 1970, thousands of people from across the country took to the street and formed what has become the Pride Movement for the LGBTQ community. This week, on the eve of its 50th anniversary, I virtually sat down with John D'Amico, former mayor and current city council member for the city of West Hollywood, to talk about how radical optimism has played a part in keeping the movement alive dealing with the HIV-AIDS pandemic, and how lessons from the past five decades can give us renewed hope in what we're all going through today. I first met John in 2015 when I was working on LA Pride, and I collaborated with him for the next four years. His support and that of the rest of his colleagues on city council has been instrumental in transforming LA Pride into an internationally known event with a global influence. So, John, you know, I think this time must be particularly difficult for you professionally as well as personally, being someone who is involved in local politics as well as a resident of the city. I know that L.A. Pride, um, we're, we're on the eve of 50th anniversary, and there are a lot of Pride or- events that took place in June of 1970, although L.A. holds the distinction of being the first permitted one uh, in a city. Do you remember the first Pride that you attended? Yeah, it had to be 1984, uh, because I remember that the Olympics were happening. I don't remember a lot about it. I remember a couple of my friends that I was there with and the Olympic banners everywhere. Uh, And I remember the sort of excitement of uh, people from all over the country being in Los Angeles uh, at that time. Not even West Hollywood existed, but being uh, in Los Angeles for the Olympics and for Pride. It's funny because I, you know, a lot of the the questions that that I wanted to kind of get to over the course of this podcast were around, you know, how things have changed in Los Angeles since since 1970, but but also certainly since you know 84 when uh, when Pride moved to West Hollywood. Um, that happens to have been your first experience with Pride. Um, have you seen it change over the years, and and how do you how do you see the evolution of it? Yeah, oh, of course, of course, it's changed and. My sense is that it used to be much scrappier. There were fewer people and it always had a bit of a sad sack sensibility. You know, there seemed (laughs) to be like a lot of emphasis on two competing ideas. Like we, we, we got ourselves and we don't need you. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there was also this idea of like, please like us, we promise we'll behave. I mean, those are the two things I sort of remember about gay life generally in the 80s, that like there was a lot of inside baseball, you know, like amongst my friends and people who were gay. And, you know, there's plenty of movies from the 80s about, you know, sort of, you know, 
sideways glances and cruising and kind of having a, an actual subculture. Right? right. And then at the same time, like, you know, showing up at family dinners with your friend. Right. You know, I mean, like kinds yeah. of language and ways that people would react. So and and I think that that pride, uh, maybe against its better judgment, uh, sort of reinforced that, you know, mm. like there wasn't a kind of largesse or a kind of risk taking to pride that I see now. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think people used to say that it was more political, but mm. the prides of the past seem to have been about performing the political for the audience that was present. You know, it's different than like a protest at the Rose Parade or at Wall Street, which would come from ACT UP or other organizations that were about rendering themselves visible in places where they shouldn't be visible. This was like, you know, they were 110% visible in a place where we could already see them. Uh, so yeah. I think that's one way that pride has changed dramatically, that it's much more genuine and authentic. It's a lot more fun. It's not hung up on pleasing the other 95%. And in fact, uh, for me, it feels like a reason to be prideful. Just that very, you know, that very thing that's happened. Yeah, you know, I think for me, it's, it's interesting you say that because I think I've always seen um, pride celebrations as, as kind of having this duality, right, where, where people come together uh, I think to your point to reinforce the politics or to kind of energize each other um, against, um, you know, whatever the community was facing at the moment, right? It could be political, uh, could have been HIV AIDS. It could be, you know, I mean, now things are virtual. So, um, you know, it's, it's always, it's served the audience in, in the moment that that audience needed it most, but it was also about celebrating, you know, the wins. Um, this was a duality of, you know, celebrating marriage equality while also, you know, energizing against politicians, um, and it's always, it, there's been a lot of different aspects to how the community has organized, um, which, is, which has been interesting. And there is kind of a push and pull there. You know, I guess the, the movement can't always be everything to everyone, but, um, but does a, a good job of, of trying to serve, um, you know, uh, in the moment of what's most important. Yeah, and I would also say, Chris, that there's, um, there's a history that I see, which is, which is in many ways different than the history uh, people I know who are 20 years older than me in their mm -hmm. 70s see. Yeah. You know, like I just assume, of course, elected officials show up at gay pride festivals and yeah. parades, right? And they say they wouldn't, you know, it took years for a, an elected official to accept a donation from a gay organization. Right. So, wow. I mean, that's the kind of progress that they experience a, a starting point that's set much further back than than me. But, yeah. but I, I also want to say that I understand that the struggle was real and that the politics of all of it were super complicated for people putting pride celebrations together um, right from the very beginning, uh, you know, and we, you worked with us, a city for yeah. several years. We were complicated even in the midst of being, you know, maybe the gayest city in America we made complicated, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so there are politics involved and there, but I, but I would just say generally, um, I, I think the, the, the success of Pride over uh, the 30 years, 30 plus years that I've been going um, is, is truly remarkable and documentable mm -hmm. and, 
Um, you know, and I would, I would think that um, acknowledging the duality of those successes um, is, is super important. The pride experience is so deeply personal and they, everyone has their own different version of pride, you know, so uh, it, it really means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And those things have changed um, politically or uh, otherwise over the past 50 years. Um, and one of the biggest changes, I guess, from 1970 to probably right before the time that that would have been your first pride would have been um, the HIV AIDS you know, epidemic emerging um, which, you know, kind of caught everyone by surprise in the same way that what we're living through now, although in a, in a much different and, and prolonged way. Do you remember when you first heard about HIV AIDS? I, I do. I've been asked this question uh, before, um, and I remember that I was home from college, and it was the summer of 1982, and I was at my parents' house uh, with my mother watching Tom Brokaw, and he was on the nightly news talking about a disease that was caused by homosexuals. And I even just saying that out loud right now, the words just hung in the air between my mother and I, you know, and wow. um, I was a week shy of my 19th birthday. And, um, you know, by my 25th birthday, I would have HIV. And so there was a kind of sort of, you know, if my, my life is not a movie, but there was a kind of foreshadowing in that moment. And even when it happened, I was like, something is really talking to me right now from, you know, NBC nightly news, Tom Brokaw, right to, right to me and my mother and I can both see it. And, you know, that, so that was a fairly intense kind of experience at 19. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, in those early days, especially at 19, I mean, no one would have known, you know, what, what it would have become and that it would have become a pandemic and last for as long as it's lasted. And do you remember, like, what the perceptions were amongst your friend, cir you know, your friend circle or, or people you knew at the time or, or just the community at large? Yeah, it was kind of a, uh, a bad homosexual problem. And by mm. bad homosexual, I mean, you know, gay guys who... Well, really, they were homosexual guys who did, you know, um, very particular kinds of things. I remember there was, mm -hmm. you know, a series of sort of redefinitions of, a, of an already incorrect definition of like, you know, um, the only people who get AIDS are people who use poppers. The only people who get AIDS are yeah. people who are, you know, having sex all the time or, you know, um, who are not in monogamous relationships. It was like, it was like the way to redefine the problem uh, based on an, on an already incorrect definition. And I think mostly it just didn't translate to the rest of America. I think yeah. um, for me in the early 80s and, uh, and in my sort of young time, like I never really saw myself as somebody who was at risk mm -hmm. because the definition of a person who got AIDS was, you know, a clone with a mustache who was six or seven years older than me, who, you know, went to the bathhouse. Yeah. And of course, clearly that wasn't correct because, you know, 
I did I did become HIV positive in 1988, but um, I think that kind of um, that kind of public perception, even within the gay community, uh, yeah. was was fairly intense. I mean, and so um, you know, and difficult, especially in the 80s, to get information about AIDS. Uh, from places that didn't, uh, that, that felt safe, you know? Yeah. You bring up an interesting point and I, and I want to come back to, to you in 1988, but, you know, I think to some extent there's still a lot of misconception around of how it happens or, or who gets it. And, you know, now we're seeing a lot of cases in, in communities of color. And so, you know, do you think there are still, is it still problematic, um, with, you know, a perception of who gets it that, that leads to youth today still, you know, becoming infected. Absolutely. I mean, there's, um, there are so many confounding and compounding reasons why uh, young people of color are infected at rates two and three times yeah. um, young white gay men. You know, things that go back hundreds of years that are about mm -hmm. the way that our government has um, not valued uh, black lives or not valued human lives, not valued gay people. In, in 1988, there weren't the type of therapeutic drugs that we have now. So um, you were in some sense, you know, sort of a lucky survivor. And I'm, and I'm sure you had a lot of friends and colleagues around you who weren't as lucky. Um, do you remember what it was like to, to see, um, you know, the loss of, of friends and family and colleagues? Uh, of course. I mean, I, uh, I, I not only remember, I can't forget and don't want to forget, yeah. of course. Um, I, I, I think the, I mean, that question gets to what we were talking about around sort of being a knuckleheaded kid who wanted to have fun. Is that in this time, in the late 80s and early 90s, I taught myself about showing up and remaining present. Because, um, you know, AIDS in the 80s and early 90s was really a slow process, a gruesomely slow process of sickness and despair. Um, I mean, there were so many moments of glorious care and commitment from people that come to mind. and But... Generally, it was um, it was about just doing my best to show up and be present, and yeah. um, you know it taught it taught me a lot. And um, I would I would give up everything I've ever learned about showing up and remaining present to get the people who I loved back in my life. Um, but you know I can't exchange those two yeah. things. Going going through those experiences. Um, and we've, we've talked before about, um, you know, being optimistic. Do you have any, um, still bits of radical optimism that you can employ now to overcome the, you know, the time we're going through? Yeah, I, th I think I, I, I really think that optimism in the face of AIDS is really part of the untold story of so many tens, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, because we certainly get the story of uh, rest his soul, Larry Kramer, you know, passed away today. Yep. Um, 
who had a had a, had a soapbox to speak on and a megaphone and a million microphones and a thousand people interested in pushing his message. But for every Larry Kramer, there were uh, several hundred thousand parents who just watched their son evaporate in front of them. And yeah. all they could do was try to be optimistic in the face of that. And there's those guys and women, um, you know, needed to, if they could, my experience in being around them, uh, find ways to uh, be optimistic about a world that um, was ready to discard them. Mm. So I think that that's a, kind of an extraordinary lesson of my life is that, um, uh, you know, that sort of gruesomeness was, was met with this kind of glorious optimism that kept me and many of the people I know and certainly a whole um, group of nonprofits moving forward. You know, th thinking about the the way that you could can remain optimistic, right, and be present for a local community or really a global community, um, you know, do, do you think like the the first pride you went to was part of like staying really optimistic and you know being amongst each other to support each other in a, in a weird time of celebration, even though you know it was a really a really tough time. I I do, and I think. I think the part of that, if I were to draw a line from what we were just talking about back to that, mm -hmm. it would be to the idea of subculture. It would be to the idea of um, gay guys knowing gay guys and lesbians yeah. knowing lesbians and gay guys knowing lesbians and bisexual people knowing gays and lesbians and trans people being present in, in that sort of very complicated mix of sexual identity and and all of it is about was about sort of believing in each other in this incredible sort of subcultural way and in many ways we we were purposefully sort of hiding our identities you know and that changed but in many other ways. Uh, I think those parades showed us that our identities can at least appear, if not to the world at large, to each other. We can show each other who we are. And I think that's the kind of optimism that showed up around AIDS, that maybe the rest of the world doesn't care about this homosexual problem, but we can show up for each other. For each other. Yeah, you know, it's it, the early pride marches, right, were, were really less of a parade and more of like a political showing up in the streets. And it, it seems like there was a pivot around the HIV AIDS crisis where, where these celebrations really become very vibrant, colorful celebrations, really almost a manifestation of this radical optimism, right, where you, you no longer have people just politically marching in the streets, but you also have this, um, for the first time, just this really explosion of of color and music and and celebration uh, in support and and just this movement of positivity uh, for the first time does that does that seem to like kind of land for you? Yeah, I I think it does. I mean, I I think AIDS caused a lot of things to happen. I think you know AIDS was sort of 
It caused uh, people, it outed people, mm-hmm. it created politics, uh, AIDS created healthcare in many ways. It mm. taught us how to care for and invent ourselves in public. And in some ways it ended the history of homosexuals and created the, the future history of gay men. You know, I think, um, I think there's, there was a, I don't remember when it was, but it was in the eighties, I think that even the New York times started using the word gay instead of homosexual that, you know, that AIDS sort of closed the book on a kind of please like us Mm. mentality and opened an entirely new book on fuck you. We're going to create all of these things (laughs) and all these worlds that are going to, uh, bend towards us as opposed to us bending towards them. So the kind of explosion of color and a kind of, you know, I mean, there's only so much you can do in a parade, but I think to, to, to gather up that and, and talk about it that way, I think you're absolutely right, Chris, that that was a sort of rendered visible explanation yeah. in some way of, of that optimism and of that invention of ourselves in public. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because we, uh, you know, in in America, all of a sudden have this explosion of color and celebration, um, which then you know trickles out to a global audience, right? And and you have um, historically a lot of adversity that LGBTQ plus communities have faced in other countries. You know, what do you think LA Pride and the Pride movement in general, like what's what's been the impact globally? You know, this is this is a much larger conversation than just. Um, than just Los Angeles or even the U.S., but what we've really done is is really changed the entire planet. We have, and I think you know, um, pride celebrations do have the power to transform places around the globe. But at the same time, I think many of us never believed that the world was quite so liminal, built on so little and mm. so flimsy. And I think this sort of global pandemic has reminded us that everything can be erased yeah. and you know pride can combat combat that and you know sort of make a place of appearances for lgbtq people to fill with their hopes and desires and notions of how the world can be and at the same time uh that can be erased so uh committing to being being present, I think, is what is is what pride pride celebrations can do, and is what pride generally does. Is it commits people to being present? Yeah, I mean that that really drives home kind of the notion of how important the movement still is, right? Because it's not just celebrating past achievements or uh, or historic wins, but that you have to continue this kind of march of equity, you know, for for global citizens. Uh, in the face of, of adversity everywhere, um, and also um, even here at home, because you know we don't know what could um, continue to happen. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that we've made such progress in the last twenty five years, and also have let uh, trans people down, you know, in yeah. some way. I mean, yes, the the forces in Washington and across the country are uh, radically horrible and monstrous. But we also, I don't think as a community, 
have uh, generated the same kind of demands that we did uh, when other things were on the line. And um, I'm sorry to, to know that about the LGBT movement. You know, there are a lot of countries still that are hostile to and, and still criminalize LGBTQ plus people. As someone with a history of civic service, do you have any advice to global citizens who find themselves in a society where, you know, their own like personhood is outlawed? I, I do. I mean, I guess I do. I, I, I be careful and, you know, yeah. look for ways to affect change uh from the inside and from the outside um and i guess perhaps optimism plays a role here which is be optimistic about uh, the future and um, be ready to take advantage of uh, what opportunities come along i mean global freedoms are melting everywhere in places we never thought possible right i mean yep we have optimism and we have opportunities <laughs> ahead yeah you know and if we do the work we'll get we'll get to change that sooner we hope than later we all kind of find ourselves in this moment stuck at home um many of of, of us alone uh, or or maybe with a partner um in in a crazy um, seemingly dark time and um you know it it is definitely a time for optimism um, I'm guessing that I know the, the answer to this question, but do you remain radically optimistic for the next 50 years of the pride movement? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I won't see most of those 50 years probably, or at least the second <laughs> half of those 50 years, maybe I will, but, um, you know, I think, um, I, I think we're at a very interesting point, which is that we have Instead of 25 years ago, where we had so much to do and so much to gain, now we have yeah. so much to lose. And how yeah. interested are we in protecting that? I think the next 25 years, the next 50 years, um, has to be about uh, continuing to reset uh, what is actual and continuing to make sure that what is actual does not become theoretical again. Yeah, I have to say, you know, even in the in the maybe five years that that I've been involved with or or actively working with the organization and in the sort of global movement, um, I I have been surprised to see how important uh, it is still to people and how I think it still can affect change. Um, I think my first year, uh, uh, twenty fifteen uh, at at LA Pride, I was just I was so uh, taken by just the sort of uh, the sort of glee and like feelings of just like wonderment that, that attendees would have, um, even in, in, in the face, um, of adversity. Uh, and uh, I'm hoping that even though celebrations are, are not happening in real life now, that things like that can come, come back because, um, I think being together like that will, does help energize the community and, and kind of spread the, the optimism that, um, that can counteract a lot of the things that, that seem like headwinds right now, but hopefully, you know, are in uh, a favorable sort of march towards a better future in the next 50 years. Yeah. And it is possible to make progress with headwinds. You just have to tack. 
appropriately. <laughs> that is a great way to, uh, to, to finish the segment. Um, I, I thank you so much, John, for taking the time and, and also for the service to the community. You know, I've, I've been firsthand witness to a lot of the change you've been able to affect um, locally, which then spreads globally. So uh, thank you for that and, and for joining us uh, on, on the podcast. Thank you too, Chris. Thanks for asking me. I'm really honored that you did. Glad to have done it. Hi, I'm Anusha Ansari, astronaut and CEO of XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, tackling the world's grandest challenges in exploration, environment, and human equity. We'd love for you to join us. Check us out on your favorite socials and find out how you can support, sign up, or join a team at xprize.org. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.